Welcome to the Public Rally. In the early 1960s, when Newport News, Virginia remained largely segregated, black residents expanded their communities offering former farmlands as plots to other middle-class black families looking to build homes. Uprooted, a documentary short by ProPublica and the Virginia Center for Investigative Reporting at WHRO tell the story of how that community became displaced by the expansion of Christopher Newport University. Was it racism or merely the unfortunate side of progress? Joining me to discuss the documentary and its findings, we welcome Brandy Kellum to the public morality. Kellum, an Emmy Award-winning journalist at ProPublica, worked on the story. Brandy Callum, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. We tend to think of colleges and universities as an equalizer against racial discrimination. But the documentary Uprooted tells a different story. Give us a synopsis, if you would. Absolutely. So Uprooted is about a community of Black Americans um, in Newport News, Virginia. Essentially, what happened to them was in the 1960s, the community was growing from mainly a farmland community where many of the elders had bought into this land in the late 1800s um, to more of a middle class Black community. And, you know, at that time, there weren't a lot of places where uh, black people could live in uh, and, um, and every housing was pretty much segregated in Virginia at this point in the 1960s. So a few of the families, including the Johnsons, decided to take whatever farmland they had left and divide it into houses uh, so that other black families could move into this area. Ones who were looking for nicer places to live. And ultimately, the city decided to target this area. And they took the core of the community by eminent domain, which essentially sees about 60 pieces of property, 60 acres of property from the area and like gutted the core of the community. Um, and today, what you see as a result of that is only about five houses left. Um, over time, the community just slowly, slowly displaced um, until now you just have about five houses left. You open uprooted showing the Johnsons, you know, looking at photographs. Um, talk about the power of visually telling that story even before you get to any words at all. I was very struck by that. Yeah, it's because Mr. Johnson just, in general, he struck me when I first met him. It was just, I had never met anyone who had taken the time to capture decades worth of documentation of a community that no longer exists. So we wanted to capture that in energy in the documentary because it really spoke to one, like the reason why we were, I was inspired to tell this story and two, the energy that the Johnsons have in terms of how they feel about what was lost in their community over time. And so imagery is a, was a big part of this story. A lot of historical images were a big part of telling the story because they show the proof that this is a community that the houses weren't in shambles. Like typically when you see neighborhoods targeted by eminent domain or renewal projects, they're deemed as blighted. And this is not was not that type of community at all. So to be able to show that through the images 
I felt like and we felt like as a team would be very powerful. No, it's, it's, it's really important. You sort of touched on this in your initial answer. I want to come back. I don't want you to gloss over it. Mm-hmm. How long has this property been in the Johnson family? So in a larger sense. Yeah, uh, it's been in their family for, I mean, if you consider that they're still living on one of the last remaining pieces of land in their family over well over 100 years. Um, The grandfather of Mr. Johnson, who we um, we follow in the documentary, uh, came into that land in the early uh, 1900s. And so it, it has been in their family for well over 100 years. And that was a direct way that the Johnsons were able to build their home. So their home was built on land that was deeded to them by their by the by his father and which he got from his father. Is that correct? Absolutely. And not only that, but the Johnsons self-financed through their family. So the their Mr. Johnson's father and his um, father's siblings gave them, financed them the money to be able to build his own home. So it was, everything was kept in the family, so to speak. Yeah. So, so, so when you look at going back to your sort of visual, so is Mr. Johnson sort of going through the photos and the scrapbook? I mean, we, you sort of open really with what I consider a metaphor for a community that no longer exist it's gone and forgot largely forgotten yes that's exactly what you that's exactly the sense that we wanted to portray right like all that is left this community essentially any evidence anything that is left to show what the community looked like is captured in mr johnson's photo books his news articles his copies of deeds his copies of letters pictures of people from the community his family photo albums and so um, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for that, you know, we wouldn't have this uh, amazing amount of w- what I would call evidence of a thriving community that was totally displaced and erased. Right. So, um, yeah, the opening of the photo books is really symbolic to your point. It's a sim- it's symbolic of the fact that this is what's left, what the memory of this community is now what's left. And these books are sort of serving as that. Hmm. Um following up I, 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 I you mentioned that in imminent domain cases for example it's usually blighted areas it was not usually but often blighted areas mm-hmm. i mean this is um a community that had been in existence for over a century um many um have been uprooted by a university that arrived uh, without dating myself in my lifetime. I mean, what, six, 61. So explain, I mean, when you were doing the interviews, how did just that, my words, absurdity feel to the Johnsons as you got to know them? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because the Johnsons are in their eighties. And so um, you know, me as a person coming into the story, learning about this story, who was much younger, did not live through any of the 1950s and 60s, the civil rights era. I didn't live through any of that. Um, to talk to Mr. Johnson about what happened 
And for him to even understand that this is part of a larger trend, I think part of it for him, um, initially there was sort of like a hesitation to even relive this, right? Because he had literally lived through everything that I just mentioned. Um, and that meant like the brutality of it all, right? And so uh, for him to talk about it in a way uh, that he was now having to relive it was a little bit challenging for him, but I think I think once we got through some of the trauma that he had to kind of remember and remember like in our documentary, he says like he did these photos because it was a way for him to um, get through the pain of losing everything. So now he's talking about this and he's reliving it. And I think for him, ultimately it became very like therapeutic to see that everything that he saved um, is now, it's, it's not, it wasn't for, you know, it didn't happen. He didn't save it in vain. And to understand that all this happened within the framework of the 1950s and 60s and the urban renewal and how neighborhoods was target, targeted was more, uh, was also a point of frustration for them and like a point of like um, tension in our story and which caused me to want to dive deeper because now you realize that not only were neighborhoods targeted for highways and um, roads, like these neighborhoods were divided by highways and roads during this time, but that universities actually played a role in this. And like the shocking aspect of that, which is something I don't think, uh, at least for me, before I started diving into this was was so obvious and widely known. Um, since you since you mentioned uh, freeways, I, I want to go back to a uh, story when I was young that when mm -hmm. we used to take road trips, my father would say, okay, now we're in a black community. We're like, how do you know that? And he, he, he would say, because the freeway's here. And he would say, whenever there's a freeway was constructed, it was usually done through black neighborhoods. The point being um, what's documented uprooted is hardly an isolated incident. I mean, mm -hmm. so talk about just how pervasive this is um, as a way of progress to decimate black communities. Or low-income communities, let's say it that way. Um, so, yeah, and when it comes to, well, as I was saying earlier, we know that highways were constructed in the middle of communities of color, Black communities uh, and other communities uh, that were marginalized. And so we leaned into that, but I think the, the, the bigger picture was the fact that, like, these were, you said something very key in your question, which is progress. Like these were projects like highways, interstates, universities that were created in the name of progress. Ultimately though, there, there, there was mainly one group in this country that was paying for that progress. And that were that those were the communities that we sort of identified in our reporting. And with the Johnsons, it was primarily black communities um, in certain areas that experienced this, uh, destruction uh, for what was said would be progression for for the whole. And, and to be honest, like in our reporting, we found that the Johnsons and other black families actually did not truly benefit from the progress that was being told to them because when Christopher Newport was opened in the 1960s, it was still a segregated college. So black people hadn't really integrated the campus until Later on, later, it was a like one person that integrated in the 1960s and then then they had more black students enrolled in the 1970s. But even today, 
the school black population is 7% compared to 75% white students. Mm -hmm. Which which essentially means that the people who are paying the price to be uprooted are largely African-American. So it's a disproportionate for who's benefiting from the university resources as opposed to who has to pay economically for this um, air quotes here, progress. <laughs> right, exactly. And if you remember in the documentary, we have one of the former presidents saying, well, this is the price that is paid for progress. But the question remains like, well, who's, to your point, like, well, who's really paying for that progress if a whole entire community was displaced and erased when there could have been other areas where the college could have been placed to begin with? I want to read you a quote from the documentary from uh, Professor DeVarian Butler, who we've had on the broadcast before. And I'd like to have you comment on the other end of this quote. People don't just live on blocks. They create identities, a sense of self based on memories. Watching a university do away with those things has a certain psychological, spiritual, and personal impact that we can't fully capture. Your thoughts? First of all, that's like one of my favorite quotes in the documentary, um, because I think uh, Professor Baldwin really does capture what these families experienced, that they weren't even allowed. Well, I'm not going to say allowed, that they weren't even able to verbalize in the in that way during this during when it was happening because of the racial dynamics of the 1950s and 60s right but truly when you think about if you just if you were to just think about the the impact it had on the Mr. Johnson himself right the psychological spiritual personal impact that it had on him you can see that in the time that he took to meticulously document everything, right? Uh, he was born on this land. His family had it for generations. He wanted to pass it on to his children. That was a form of creating generational wealth. So the personal, spiritual, psychological impact of this is I cannot hand this down to my children because I have no idea what's going to happen with this when I'm no longer here. Psychologically, it impacts you because you're seeing in his eyes, you're seeing your entire community go down one by one while, you know, by by way of demolition trucks carrying away pieces of debris when the house is essentially like torn down. And then like that spiritual part is the idea that you believe as someone in America that you have a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And for them, this was the right to land ownership and being able to pass that down to their family and the belief in that and having to hold on to that even while seeing things being destroyed around you or being your neighborhood, feeling like your neighborhood is seemingly personally targeted because of the fact that the white community around you as a whole doesn't want a black middle-class community next to them that can definitely impact you spiritually and like impact your faith in humanity. But the simple fact is even through all that, Mr. Johnson still collected documents. And to me, it was sort of like a quiet protest because he was not the loudest voice in the room, but what he has done has been so uh, fundamental to being able to, to capture and tell the story as the, in the way that we did. Uh, my apologies. I may have said uh, Devarian Butler. I meant to say Devarian Baldwin. So, <laughs> right, right. Uh, my apologies for that. Um, tell us, if you could, uh, um, 
give us a brief history of Christopher Newport University. Yeah, so Christopher Newport University uh, established in 1961 in Newport News. Uh, when it was originally established, it was established in this old school building, not far from its current location today. Uh, however, by the time the school opened, people they were the city was already talking about where to establish it. So you have the school sort of being established and the idea of where to put it permanently, these conversations sort of happening at the same time. And so ultimately we know the school was established on land seized from black residents in this area of Newport News. Fast forward to the 1980s, the school decides to expand the boundaries of the campus to encompass the rest of the houses that remained on the outskirts in the time that remained in the outskirts when the university was originally established in the 1960s, these houses were still left. And so now in the 1980s, the school expands again uh, to encompass the rest of the houses on the boundary. And then today, the what you see today is nothing like what existed in the 1950s and 60s. What you see today is uh, large scale billion dollar investments on campus that have turned into these um well, I, they they some people would describe them as colonial look buildings. You could describe them as like Gregorian style, whatever it is. These buildings are now across campus. They span about over a hundred and some odd acres, probably more than that, and they've taken over the entire community. Plus, they've now like extended over to other parts of Newport News, and you see like the president's the last president the last president who was responsible for this his name like on plaster on top of the library because it's named after him for what he did um, in terms of finalizing the rest of the university's expansion on that former community and then some essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and just, just for our listeners, is this a private institution or just a public institution? It is a public institution. Uh, it is definitely a public institution um, within the state of Virginia. So it is governed by what all public universities in the state of Virginia are governed by, which is the Board of Visitors, people who make decisions about the the future of the college. It is a public institution. And as I mentioned earlier, it's predominantly a white institution. It has 75% white students and only 7% um, black students. Mm -hmm. And also so like the context of this, I would like to add is that it's in a city that has a 44% black population. So this is a university that gets taxpayer dollars for its survival, uh, state and I'm assuming some federal money. And yet um, it begins with a systematic process of discrimination because it was founded during Jim Crow era mm -hmm. and its expansion um, is done on the backs of individuals who comprise no more than 7% of the current enrollment. How did I get that right? <laughs> you got that right. Yes. <laughs> you did. You got that right. It uh, everything uh that you laid out, yes, it's on top of a it's on top of land that was predominantly black and its student body does not represent the population, the black population of the city that it actually sits in. You know, one one of the things, and I must admit that um, there are often subtle things that capture my um, 
subtle things that capture my uh, attention when I'm watching a documentary. And in this case, it was Barbara Johnson's comment when she was asked why would they build their house so close to university, which, again, you talked about not being the loudest in the room, but her response to that was very forceful and not only accurate. I mean, they had been there almost a century before this university arrived. And so how was it that someone could even ask them that, that type of question? And I, I sort of like the way she sort of dismissed it, like we were here first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was her whole point, because because the memory of the community is sort of only designated, it's only been saved in these books that Mr. Johnson has, because outwardly all you see is campus buildings, and then you see these five little houses um, sprinkled around the campus. For someone who doesn't know the history of this, they would think, oh, these people decided to build their homes around a college campus. And her point is very clear. No, we were here first. We've been, we were here well before the college decided, or there were well before people decided to put the college here. And so we're going to be here until we are no longer able to be here. The Johnsons, um, in my view, continue to wage this courageous battle. Mm -hmm. Though James Johnson states in the documentary that he's resigned himself to the fact that one day their property will be part of the university. Explain, if you will, knowing the eventual outcome as they do, why are they waging this fight and why is it important to them at this point in their lives? Mm. I think that knowing, I think part of it is wanting to know what the outcome will be for them. I mean, they know eventually the school would likely um, acquire their home given they're one of five homes left. And their question is, well, when is, they don't know when that could happen, right? There's no law in Virginia that prevents the college from using eminent domain if they wanted to, to take the property today. Uh, you know, the, the, there would be a process for that. Obviously, they couldn't just say they're going to take it and then do it. There would obviously be a process for that. But there's no law protecting the Johnsons and the other five family members, essentially from given they're in the university's footprint from from being subject to an imminent domain proceeding. So for them, it's really about the wanting to live comfortably in their homes for however long they would like to, and possibly even being able to pass that on to their children. But given they've lived under this cloud for 60 years, you know, I think they're that being able to speak about it now, as I was saying earlier, is one, I think very therapeutic for them, but I also think helps get may help get answers that they're seeking about what and how long they could actually stay in their home. What's depicted and uprooted, in my view, is another side of racism. Perhaps it's not it's definitely it's not the vitriol of police dogs and fire hoses, but it's a vitriol, in my view, cloaked in city ordinances, eminent domain and a look to the future. And as we had mentioned earlier, progress. But it really is an old, old story in that the systematic dislodging of black residents is a descendant of 19th century westward expansion, appropriating other people's land. I mean, how, how, how do you see that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because 
there's a layer to this that in one way you can look at this as to your point, right? Like this is all legal. Um, it's in the constitution that, uh, you know, the government can take property for public use as long as they give you the value of what your property is worth, right? And we could argue like there are definitely times that this is documented that certain groups do not get the value of what their property is worth, even, even if it's written in the constitution in the law that way. Um, but to your point, this expansion into uh, other communities, communities of color is part of a larger issue of black land loss in this country, because here you have a legal way to create what some would say would be progress for a city by putting a university there, but by, but in reality, what you're doing is you are displacing people from a home that in this case, they do it by their hands, self-financed, had neighbors help them put roofs on the house. So they, they were able to do this with whatever money they had. And in some ways, if they're being displaced, they're likely not going to be able to find that same value of property anywhere else um, for the amount of money that they spent to create, build what they built in, for their homes. So that expansion in, is an expansion into communities that destabilizes them and then creates and per perpetuates this issue of Black land loss that we see, which is also part of what has created, created this wealth gap between Black and whites in the country. Because um, when you lose a home, you lose much more than a piece of property. Like you use, you lose to some degree equity if you can't find the same value of property somewhere else. And you lose sense of community if you're being displaced from a group of people who you've only known, who you've grown up with that you consider family. And that's social wealth. Like that's not just like financial wealth, but that's like social capital because that's your support network. The people around you who you depend on to help you get through life every day. Well, you just added another layer on our conundrum that um, oftentimes um, the, the, the amount that's paid for this property is not of equal value. If you take value in this larger communal, social economic sphere that rarely, if ever, um, when, when eminent domain is invoked, uh, you don't get equal value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and most of the times when that, when you, when you don't get equal values, when you don't have representation to advocate for yourself, but that also costs money and resources and that's time spent in courtrooms or litigating what the value of your property is. And that's paying for experts and that money potentially comes out of the pocket of the person who is fighting for the value of their property to begin with, which if you're looking at a person who barely had enough money to afford the home to begin with, they don't have the resources for that. And those are the people who ultimately, to some degree, suffer uh, more harm when it comes to these type of proceedings because they don't have the resources to get the full get argue for the full value of their property. And ultimately they just take whatever offer they can get. Well, as you're doing this story, does one need to have racial hatred in order for racism to exist? 
does one need to have racial hatred? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think based on the reporting, you know, it, there are so many layers of, for lack, you know, I'm just calling it a spade a spade, there racism in this story, right? There are so many different layers of that in this story. I mean, you have the, there was direct racism, like there was outward racism in some ways. Um, there was very subliminal racism, the racism that played a role in the decisions of decision of the city council members to ultimately take this property, knowing that black residents were saying this was an unfair, unjust taking. Then you had like the right white residents around them, some of them. There were some that were allies in this particular situation, but the majority of white residents in the surrounding community who advocated for the city to take the pro take these properties and um and claim that the black residents could find better properties elsewhere was also a form of like racist ideal idealism around. Um, not wanting black residents to live near you, then you also have like this level of elitism, right? Which there's racism that plays a role in that, but it wasn't so, it was more so wealth than racism because you had like these new white middle-class neighborhoods popping up and you had a white country club that only certain people were allowed to uh, join in the city. And that kind of, that's a little complex because, right, you have, classism and racism sort of like wrapped up into one there. And I think that in all these different cases, there wasn't one situation where like there was an outward obvious hatred towards these people, but it was more, it was more so of a, it was more so of a lack of wanting to, it was actually, it was more of a protest and sort of it's for, for white citizens during this time against integration, which you could say that would that is racism, but it wasn't so it wasn't like this outwardly hatred. Like I'm going to like what we see sometimes portrayed in movies, like people's houses being burned down and people being targeted violently. Right. When you think about that level of hatred, we didn't see this. We saw this play out. We saw this racism play out more politically uh, than and more. We saw this play out politically and legally. Right. Versus like outward attacks against these residents that lived in the community. And that's what makes this story so interesting because at the bottom, at the at the core of this is seeing how systemic racism plays out, right? We talk about systemic racism a lot in this country. It's a very popular subject nowadays and it's hard to visualize what that looks like. And I think this story actually allows you to see visually what systemic racism looks like. No, I'm, 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 I'm glad you said it that way, um, because oftentimes I think in, in, in our society, we want to make if you don't have a hooded sheet and you're not burning a cross, it's not racism. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're not and if you cannot be you don't have to be angry, you don't have to be vitriolic. Um, you don't have to burn anybody's house, but you can but racism can still exist. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, because I dare say I, I I looked at Newport News Virginia and I didn't see any efforts to uproot um, well healed members of society mm -hmm. and 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 so there's a there's a love there's a couple layers there I mean you you there's there's a class layer there's a there's an economic layer there's a racial layer uh, layer all those layers sort of build to make this black community, the low hanging fruit um, 
for me to metaphorically use the word once again, progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that's exactly what everything sort of converged here to create a opportunity for the city council members who were all white at the time to look at the low hanging fruit of where can we place this university and where can we also essentially like in some ways kill two birds with one stone because we have we need a place for the college but we also know that there are certain people who are uncomfortable with this community here so what can we do to make it so that progress can be made and um but not seem as though we are uh unfairly uh causing sort of like this animosity between like we don't want to we don't want to create animosity right by by this decision so the best way to not create animosity is to use education as an excuse to displace this community um i know i i know i'm asking you to speculate but just in your reporting of this story did the the fact that we're doing this for the university the fact that um we're no laws were broken. Did this, in your way, in your view, naively uh, allow those involved in the eminent domain process to feel they weren't doing anything racially? Uh, there were no racial motivations. This was just progress, and that the fact that this was a black community was more of a coincidence than any kind of racial intent. That's actually a really good question because um, I actually read through a lot of the city council minutes uh, when we were doing our reporting. And those were some of the excuses that were given by people who were responsible for creating this um, progress at the time. Right. So you had like the city manager saying or the city or the mayor or certain members of city council saying things like, oh, well, we're, you know, we are only taking some of the community. We're not taking all of it. And we're only taking the pieces of land that people actually don't live on, which we know that there were still people who owned that land that was farmland. So that was sort of a way of living for certain people, even if there weren't houses on it. Right. So it was sort of painted as we're not taking away your homes more so than we're taking away your land. But in some ways, that's still very harmful to a group of people, especially when they were seeking to actually build more houses on that land, right? And then you have people who said, well, well, you have people who spoke up at meetings or wrote letters to members of the city council that said, oh, well, ultimately they're going to benefit from this anyway. Having a college here is going to allow them to be able to seek and gain an education at some point, right? And now we know ultimately that that hasn't really played out the way that it was said it would back then because of the low percentage of black students that actually enroll at the college today. So to your point, there were a lot of reasons given, uh, we were able to document there were reasons that were given as to why this wasn't a racially motivated decision um, by people who were in charge of making this decision, even though the evidence shows that there were other areas that could have been um, selected and that this was actually the most expensive location for the city to choose to plant the college. So when you add, and there were black residents who said that like this is not it's no coincidence that we have been selected given that and there's no coincidence given that there are other black areas that have been target 
targeted prior to us, but also that you're picking a location that is the most controversial, the most expensive, and the least feasible to put a, put a college because you have a whole group of black people living here. So to your to to answer your question, yes, like there were there was evidence in our reporting that reasons were given that this wasn't to be this wasn't a racially motivated decision, but there was evidence that showed otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to put myself uh, this is just an exercise. So don't, don't kill me. I'm going to put myself in the, <laughs> in, the, in the role of the university for a moment and I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to have you comment on the statement if you would. So I'm going to counter everything you just said. I'm going to counter uh, with, you know what? Our university has a diverse population and sometimes progress does not present neat and easy solutions. How do you respond to that? Hmm. Well, well, without being someone, I, without being, you know, giving my opinion on this, I was, I would respond based on, the families, right, that we spoke to, like the the progress being that diversity, there's like essentially what the response is saying is that there's no easy way to resolve diversity issues. Um, it is a complicated one. And I think that one, there was actually an event that the university had where some people were able to get up and speak about this issue of diversity at the college. So this is not only just a reporter's observation, but this is like people who actually attend the school, who actually are members of community around the school and that have voiced their concerns about the lack of diversity at the school. Right. Um, and then also just to, just to put it out there, there's a new administration at the school now. So the previous administration was around for 26 years. Like there's that context. Right. So, uh, if we're if if this is sort of what the previous administration is how if this is how they are responding, I think there would be a lot of people who would argue differently. Like there was even one person that said that the the fact that this is a school that only has a seven percent black population, but um, the surrounding area has forty four percent black people living in it, it doesn't look anything like the community that it is actually positioned in, and so that is an issue that needs to be addressed. I think that 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 was said by one of the people that the university actually asked to be on the panel. Right. So I think the diversity being a complicated thing in some ways, uh, people have acknowledged that. But I think more so they are looking at the fact that it's so like the fact that the black population is so low that that is that points to a larger issue that doesn't just point to in their eyes. It doesn't just point to the fact that diversity is complicated and difficult to address or a very complex issue that create that needs to be addressed in a very variety of ways, right? I think more people are looking at the fact that it's so low, the black enrollment, that it's pointing to a larger issue than the school's um, challenges with creating a diverse environment, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm sure some of our listeners uh, may wonder why so much emphasis placed on race uh, mm -hmm. but but what you present in uprooted is part of a long legacy of of uh, what's defined as racial capitalism in other words whether it's slavery the expansion of railroads in fact pr practically every college or university that has a land grant designation was land appropriated from others namely native americans so so in this case, 
racial capitalism is a key component to progress that has been pernicious on historically on people of color. Um, mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Your thoughts? Yeah. Um, in this case, it's very like racial capitalism here, right? It's like the the idea that um, capitalism is used as a way to um, justify something that is racially motivated, right? And also like capitalism is benefiting. In this case, like it's been if people are, the people who are benefiting financially from this are not the people who are being displaced, right? And they're being severely um, challenged. They're giving, their situations become more severe because they not only are displaced, but they have to find a, a new place to live and they have to start over. In some ways, I think you could argue that this is definitely a interesting case to show how racial capitalism impacts a community over time, right? Because in this, in some cases, the the area where the school is now, the school has been benefiting for over the last sixty years because they've get gotten new buildings, they've increased their endowment. Uh, you know, the president, the last president was getting paid like half a million dollars to preside over the school. But on the other hand, you see like around you a black community that's disappearing and families are being displaced and they're having to pick up somewhere else. And um, and some of them weren't well, some of them were not better off than um, they were before they left. And so I do think that, as I said earlier, you see this case of how systemic racism racism has played a role, but I think racial capitalism is also very alive and well in this story. And you see that based on who's benefiting from this progress, as you had said earlier, who isn't. Um, You touched on this earlier, but I just uh, want to come back to it. Posing the contrarian question, could the university have done something different? Interesting. So I think that in the case of the 1960s, right, the university, the city could have done something different. The city could have chosen, it had options for where it could have placed the college. The city probably could have chosen a different location to place the college that would not have displaced this large black community. Later on in years, as the college is now gaining momentum and wanting to expand, now like more of the decisions are in the hands of the leaders of the college. And I think based on our reporting, based on the fact that there was even a lawsuit that came up because of the expansion, I think people would from the community would argue the college could have done differently. Uh, they felt like the college could have communicated to them that they were planning to expand because they had no idea that this expansion was occurring until they read it in the newspaper, right? I think they felt like the college could have communicated to them that that was happening, that they were uh, potentially going to be included in the boundaries of the college and also communicated to them what that meant for their community um, before it was published in a newspaper. And I think like ultimately the college acknowledging what happened later on in years without um, what some would argue from the community fully acknowledging the community itself. Like there's a sign that the college has up that um, mentions a member of the community whose name is William Walker, who was a part of fighting 
who was in the who was in the uh, city council meeting rooms in the 1950s and 60s in the 1960s um asking council not to choose a community but then later on in years like in the 1980s or so he became a member of the college's board of visitors so essentially he was employed by the college and the college has a plaque dedicated to him that essentially says while he was against the college being here he ultimately became a staunch supporter of the school um, many people who are from that community who drive past that sign consider that an insult because it does not acknowledge, it acknowledges one person who essentially they think did not advocate for them the way that the college, they, they, they don't feel like he advocated for them the way the college portrays on the sign. And they also don't feel that this person uh, represents their community as a whole because they he wasn't a, he wasn't involved or he really didn't support their battle to save the community in later years. So and to answer your question, simply just having that sign up is something that I think people are asking what's going to be done with that. And maybe there's an opportunity there for the college to do something differently. But right now, the sign is still up. Mm. Uh, is there any other way to see what's depicted and uprooted? as the city of Newport News uh, invoking a deliberate attempt to get rid of a black community. Is there any, so is there any way to- Is see? there any other way to see that, what, what you depicted and uprooted mm -hmm. as, the, as the city of Newport News um, having a deliberate attempt to get rid of a black community? Should we see that any other way? Oh, I see. Um, huh, that's a good, that's an interesting question. I think that the way that we depicted it was in a way like the most human way to do it, right? Because, you know, we're we're basically just laying out all the details of everything that happened and we're telling it through the story in the eyes of a family who has lived through it. I think from a basic human level, you can connect, anyone can connect to that. Anyone can connect to the idea of community, Anyone can connect to the idea of this sense of loss, uh, this sense of nostalgia, this wanting to um, to like have something that is ultimately taken away from you and because you have no control over what happens to you, right? Anyone can essentially connect to that. And that's pretty much what we tried to, to depict in this documentary. So to answer your question, I think, I don't know if there was any other way to depict what happened to this community. Um, like we have shown an uprooted that tries to get, that tries to speak to the heart of humanity and show the devastating loss of a family in a large community. And what happens when, for, for reasons that are beyond their control and also due to racism, they have, they lose something that they are essentially trying to build just like, every other American wants to build, like have a home, be in a community that you feel comfortable in, that being able to walk into your front door into a house that you've built. Sometimes, some in some cases, like you've built yourself, right? It's the American dream. And we try to lean into that. And um, hopefully, and hopefully people are able to connect to that and really understand the core and the challenges that this community faced and what they truly lost. And in the case of the Johnsons, not only um, they also financed 
their dream. <laughs> so they self finance, <laughs> which makes it a profoundly American story. Brandy uh, Callum, ProPublica, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Rally. Um, it's a great documentary. And um, uh, how can others who are listening to this broadcast see that uh, work that you produced? Yeah, so uh, you can watch the documentary. It's now available on YouTube. If you go to ProPublica's YouTube YouTube channel, you can find it that way. It's called Uprooted. Um, we also uh, did this documentary in partnership with the Virginia Center for Investigative Journalism um, at WHRO. So you can find it on their website as well. And I also wanted to just credit the other uh, producers and um, the team who helped to make this documentary possible. Uh, because without them, like the Johnsons are um, the the Johnsons sharing their collection was extremely valuable to this. The team that helped put this together, we were small but mighty, and I just you know want to thank them for contributing to such a great project that I hope really reaches a lot of people. And their names? Oh yeah, so we have Lou. <laughs> Lou Hansen from the Virginia Center for Investigative Journalism, Chris Tyree from the same organization, and then Lisa Riordan Seville and Dan Golden from ProPublica. Hmm. No, you all collectively did a great job, a great piece of reporting. And um, what you did is a reminder that the uh, fourth estate is still alive and well, maybe not in the way we, we are accustomed to get it and getting years past, but it's still alive and well. So thank you for this wonderful work. Thank you uh, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.